I am so delighted to welcome Julia Quinn onto the podcast. Julia is the author of the number one best-selling Bridgerton books, which are the series of romance novels set in 1800s Britain that inspired the hit Netflix series, and her book's been translated into more than 40 languages. The most recent installment in the Bridgerverse is Queen Charlotte, who's of course a character in the show and in history. So Julia, welcome. I am such a big fan of your books. So so what inspired you to write this latest collaborative book? So Queen Charlotte is very interesting in that she's part of the show universe and history, but not the book universe. Um, It was very interesting because she actually is the only one of the main characters in the television show who was not in the books. And she's the one who's getting a spinoff. But I think that's great. She was actually my favorite change from book to show, uh, primarily because Golda Rocheville is just so brilliant playing her. And what happened was uh, I got a phone call from Shonda that they were going to make this prequel series about Queen Charlotte, her origin story. And I was very excited, obviously. And then I suggested to Shonda, you know, maybe we should write a book. So what we have now is the book series that created the television series that created another television series that created a book, uh, which is very meta, but super fun. (laughs) And, you know, it was just, it was this fascinating process that used really a different part of the writing brain, which I loved. And Basically, you know, I Shonda wrote all the scripts. There, it wasn't a writer's room, which you, most television shows have a more collaborative script writing process, but she wrote the scripts. And so then I took the scripts and, you know, fashioned them into a novel. And I feel, I, I want to make sure everybody understands it is a proper novel. It's not, you're not getting a collection of screenplays. Um, and, and it was really in many ways like a puzzle because I had to break down the architecture of these screenplays and then rebuild them into a different literary format Because if you think about it, screenplays are many, many short scenes and novels are longer scenes. And, you know, I had to decide, okay, whose point of view are we in? And what are these characters thinking? Because you don't know that when you see a television show. And then there were some gaps in time I got to fill in. And it was just, it was incredible. It was, and you know, you'd think after almost 30 years of, of writing romance novels, I wouldn't necessarily have a new experience, but this was really new and, and really great. Well, what made you choose this, this world? I mean, what I love, of course, I'm based in London, and you so have captured this British era. And I love how specific it is. You've got the five fruit and street address. You've got, you've got real places. So what is it that, that brought you to Britain? Well, I, I first should apologize because Five Bruton Street's actually a pub. And I did not know that when I wrote that. And and it I think it even was a pub during Regency times. So oh, it has funny, always yeah. been a pub. Uh, I hope that they get wonderful business, actually. <laughs> um, and, the, and for people who watch the show who don't read the books, Five Bruton Street is the address that Violet eventually moves to out of uh, Bridgerton House in London because she wants to leave it to Anthony and... Kate, what drew me to England? Well, you know, I've lived there a couple of times, not not for long period of times, but for several months. I took a gap year between high school and college, and I ended up at an all-girls Church of England boarding school in 
Gloucestershire, mm. which makes me, you know, one of 11 Americans who can pronounce Gloucestershire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that was really fun and different and interesting. And then uh, in 2000, I lived in central London for about four months while my husband studied at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. Mm. So I have actually spent you know, enough time in the UK so that, you know, I had days where I wasn't like thinking I must sightsee today, which is really kind of a luxury to live somewhere and not feel like you have to see something every single day. But I was reading books set in the Regency times before I ever stepped foot in the UK. And I think it's because it's just this very popular little subgenre, probably created by Georgette Heyer, who I think is still more, more popular in the UK than the US. And it just really built from there. And it was just something I loved to read. And there was something about the manners of it and, you know, these rigid rules that could give you these plots that you could never have in a contemporary book. Uh, and, and even more so now, because, you know, we we have cell phones, we can just, you know, answer a question, whereas before it took a letter, you know, I don't know, two weeks. So just, you know, the witty repartee, the, I, I don't know, it just, it was a fun period and it was what I love to read. You know, it's also probably going to get a bunch of tourist attention is in Kew Gardens, you know, the botanical garden in um, mm-hmm. Southwest London, Queen Charlotte's Cottage, like the Queen Charlotte has a cottage there that so I've been a member for years and I had never been there and we just went the other day and it's adorable and it was closed you couldn't go in but apparently in the warmer months you can um but I mean it's it's absolutely lovely and there's some history that that was like her favorite place to go and it's um it's interesting I I feel like you you were going to put put her back in the in the in the the starring role in kind of that um people for people who are interested in that in that era well, that's cool. And I've also heard that Ranger's House in Greenwich, which is what they use for the exterior of the Bridgerton home, has been getting a little renaissance uh, with tourists taking their picture there. So I think that's great. And so how is it that you are so prolific? You just have so many, because of course, you know, there's the the Bridgerton books and all these spinoffs. This, and you've been writing them since for more than 20 years now. I mean, how is it that you've been able to consistently churn out so many? Um, Well, first of all, I actually don't think of myself as terribly prolific. Within the romance field, I'm not considered a fast writer at all. And if I have a big backlist, it's probably just because I've been doing it a long time. But, you know, I average, you know, one a year or maybe I mean, now I'm less than one a year, maybe at my fastest when I didn't have, you know, children, it was doing six to nine months, but now I'm actually not super fast, but in terms of, you know, keeping it up over so long, I, for me, the trick has always been to try to change up at times how I write a book rather than, than what I write because I still very much enjoy books set in this time period. And all my books have been set in either with the Regency time period or the period just after, because uh, technically the Regency ends, I think, in 1820. And then I do have one series that's a generation earlier in Georgian times. 
but, you know, but they all have a certain, you know, similar sensibility. And so in order to keep it fresh, which is a word I, I hate, but I don't really know what else to use there. Mm-hmm. I have occasionally shaken up how I do something, you know, so for example, the Queen Charlotte book is a perfect example of that, of writing a book in a totally different way. I, I've done things where I have collaborated with two other authors and we wrote a novel in three parts. And so that, again, uses a different piece of the writing brain. And then one of my favorite examples of writing something totally differently is, gosh, it must be 15 years ago now, but I wrote a set of books that I call the Two Dukes of Wyndham. Mm-hmm. And they are, it's a, it's a little duet and the books have the same external plot, which is which one of these men is the true Duke. And they each have their own internal plot, which is their own romance, but they have the same external plot. And so you've got scenes that appear in both novels, but from different points of view. And I realized as I was doing it that I had to write them simultaneously. So no set of characters became Mm -hmm. truly secondary to the other. And so I wrote these two books at the same time. And again, this was something which I will never do again, but uh, for the time I did it, again, used a different piece of the writing brain and kind of just kept things exciting and different. And did you map out the series before you started writing it or did it evolve as you began? You mean the Bridgerton series? Yeah, the Bridgerton series. I definitely didn't map it out because I did not realize it was going to be eight books. When Mm. I started out, I thought it was going to be three Mm. Uh, because for no real reason other than the fact that romance is just full of trilogies. And so it just seemed Mm. like, okay, we'll do three. (laughs) And, um, And so I, you know, I started with Daphne and then I thought I'd do Anthony, her older brother. And then Mm. I figured Colin, because he was the one who had the most airtime in in book one. And it was actually very funny. My editor said, you know, maybe you should only do two before she read it. She said, I feel like with trilogies, you've always got the first book, which is really fun because you're all excited about it. And then the third book is the character that you've saved because they're the most uh, charismatic. And then the second one's a little bit like filler. And (laughs) I said, well, I really have three characters I like here. And so she said, all right, okay, okay. And then the first book really kind of took off I think in large part because of the Lady Whistledown uh, plot, which was, Mm -hmm. it wasn't the first time somebody had, you know, employed a gossip columnist as a literary device in a romance novel, but Mm -hmm. I think it might've been the first time where, you know, they introduced this mystery that was not solved at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. So it kind of hooked people, you know, and there are people who are saying like, I didn't even like the book and I have to read the next one. So, (laughs) Um, I mean, hopefully more people did like the book. And so that took off. And then the second one, you know, did very well. And um, at that point, you know, I think I said to my publisher, I said, maybe I should write a book about Benedict too. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that point, it was going to be four books. And then by the time I signed my next contract, it would actually specified in the contract that they had to be Bridgerton books. It became obvious Mm. that this was just a very popular book series in a way that I hadn't had before and, and we were just going to continue. And, you know, I was kind of sitting there going like, wow, I, I, why did I give them eight people? Um, but of course now I'm glad I did, but it, it, if I had planned it out, 
I would have made my life a lot easier because there, there are definitely times when I felt I'd written myself into a corner and couldn't figure out what to do. I, I'd sit there and be like, oh, I could do. No, I can't because I already, this person's already not in the country and things like that. So no, I, I did not plan it out is the short version of my very long answer. <laughs> and so, so what are you working on next? What's next for the the Bridger, Bridgerverse or beyond? Bridgerverse. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm taking a little break. And yeah, I, I, I haven't figured it out. Does, does it surprise you the, 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 the hands-on like weekends people get involved with, like the Bridgerton, the Bridgerton experience weekends mm -hmm. that you've come. I mean, have you done one of those? And so I visited, there's the official Bridgerton experience, which is the Queen's Ball, which they have in the United States, there's, there's something in the UK too, which is, I think it's got a slightly different name because it's run by a different company. So there's, there are those official ones. And then people have tons of unofficial ones. Mm. I have visited the Queens ball. I didn't actually take part in the festivities. It was COVID was still a little bit mm. too much in the forefront of my mind at that point to take part, but I got to see the set and everything they're doing. And it was just mind blowing. And, and I did kind of lurk in the background. I saw the people going by in their fancy costumes and I think, oh my gosh, I'm not really much of a dress up person. Um, so, you know, I don't know that, you know, if I were, you know, a regular Bridgerton fan, I don't know that I would be the person going out to do it, but maybe, I don't know. It looks fun. I, I, I it's, it's surreal, frankly. I mean, so, so did that wasn't your intention necessarily when you wrote the book? I mean, did you imagine that something like that? Oh my gosh, happen? no. No. Well, I mean, I never, certainly, I, I never imagined that there would be a television series because nobody was adapting romance mm -hmm. novels. If, if somebody wanted to do a period piece, they would do Jane Austen for the 50th time. And, mm -hmm. you know, don't get me wrong, I'm here for every Jane Austen adaptation. I, I love them all. But I think part of the reason Bridgerton is such a success is that there are all these people who love all the Jane Austen adaptations, but are ready for something, you know, a story they don't already know. And I think people also weren't doing this because, you know, if they're going to do Jane Austen or Emily Bronte or, you know, whatever, it, you know, that immediately makes it a prestige piece. Whereas, you know, a Julia Quinn book or, uh, or some other historical romance written contemporarily and I don't even know if that's a word, is not an instant prestige piece. And in, in fact, it's the opposite because we look at romances as kind of like, oh, those books. And so, no, it never occurred to me somebody would adapt it because nobody was. And then I got a phone call. So, you know, I, I don't think it's a surprise that Shonda Rhimes would be the person to figure out that this could be an incredible story on television and that there's a huge audience for it. It's a, and I because I have to tell you, I'm I was somewhat late to the Bridgerton party in part because I don't do historical romance or I didn't used to. And the reason is because often the women don't have agency. And you know, as a feminist, I like to read women in charge of their own destinies, which often in that period well, generally were not. But what's so genius about these books is the women do have agency and they do have power despite the constraints of the time. And so, of course, you know, it makes so much sense that Shonda Rhimes would see that and want to put that on screen because they are so theatrically written. There are so many scenes reading it where you're like, oh, yeah, you can just see it. And it does it does come out so well, so well on the screen. 
Well, I have to say, I, I'm certainly not the only historical romance author who is writing books where the women do have agency. In fact, I think you'll find that most of them are like that, mm. at least now. It, it, I think that back when the genre really first took off, the women did have less agency. And I think that we still have maybe the reputation that people are thinking the books being written today are the ones that were being written in the 1970s. Mm. But what's very interesting about those early historical romance novels is that they are in a way very subversively feminist because, and this took me a while to understand because, you know, originally I was just like, oh my gosh, they're like these rape fantasies. And, you know, she's, she's just, she's, you know, he's, she's falling in love with her rapist and all these things. It was terrible. I was like, oh, this is like the most anti-feminist thing ever. Mm -hmm. And, but you have to analyze them. I mean, if you're going to analyze them in terms of the time they were written in, because when The Flame and the Flower came out, which is written by Kathleen E. Woodwiss, and I think it was 72 or maybe 73, and that was that's considered the, the first modern historical romance novel. And when it came out, it was at a time when women were not allowed, you can see my air quotes here on mm -hmm. this podcast, to um, embrace their own sexuality. Um, especially out of wedlock. And so the only way that she was able to portray this character as enjoying, you know, uh, her sexuality was having it kind of forced upon her and saying, okay, well, you know, so she didn't initiate it. Uh, she didn't, um, she didn't, she didn't ask for it, but then it leads into something where she can enjoy it and, um, and, and take part. And it was really the only way to have a book where you had explicit sex on the page is to get that introduced within a character who was trying very hard to be prim and proper and, you know, basically was forced into it, but then came to enjoy it. You know, that's not how I would choose to portray something today. It's not how I think anybody would, mm. but in the time, it was the only way that you could have that. And I think, you know, millions of women, the book was a huge bestseller. And I think millions of women really flocked to it in part because they were able to read sexual fantasies within, you know, a, a historical romance. And it was the first time it had been on paper and they, they really liked it, but it was kind of the only way that was acceptable at the time. Wow. It's that, well, I mean, you've definitely opened the door for me to, to the genre, but um, mm -hmm. well, well done to you and congratulations on Thank your you. success and also um, Queen Charlotte and everything else. Look forward to reading what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank you.